when it comes to really loving your working life, we've got to change this, this idea that it's all about figuring stuff out in advance and then acting on it. It's almost always action, and the action leads to the insights and the developments and the satisfaction. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Welcome to the TMBA Podcast. I really hope you're going to enjoy today's show because I had a blast talking with this week's guest. My name is Cal Newport. I'm a computer science professor, and I write about the impact of technology on our work and our lives. Now, for those of you who haven't geeked out on Cal as much as I have, I just want to fill you in a little bit on his background because we're going to reference a lot of his work during our conversation. And of course, we're going to include everything on our show notes, which we're going to upload at tropicalmba.com slash Cal Newport. Now, Cal also has a blog at calnewport.com, which he started way back in 2007. And he's been writing books since the time he was a student in college. His most recent book is called Deep Work, which is about the benefits and practical steps to getting more done, specifically in the internet age. So for those of you looking to get more work done and do it with less stress, and honestly, just to be more successful in your business and your careers, I highly suggest Deep Work. It's really affected the way that I go about my day-to-day. Cal also wrote a book on career success called So Good They Can't Ignore You. That book challenges this idea that's become popular recently that the most important thing for career success is following your passion. And he makes a really interesting case for how you can get ahead and how you can reap the most satisfaction from your career. Hint, not by following your passion. All right, enough housekeeping. Let's get to the interview. And I just want to say it's really wide ranging from distributed algorithms at the extremes, and don't worry, I don't understand them either, (laughs) to why Cal uses something as simple as walking to enhance his productivity and how creativity is, in reality, a lot more workmanlike than most people give it credit for. This episode and all the show notes and links to everything we're going to discuss today will be posted at tropicalmba.com slash Cal Newport. This interview kicks off with me asking Cal why he started his blog in the first place. Well, I had two books out that were for students. I wrote basically them both while I was an undergraduate, and it was like advice for how to do really well at being a student. And so I started the blog initially to basically be the stuff that didn't make it into the books, like a way to keep talking to that audience who was buying my books. Hey, there's a lot of advice. I didn't get into the book. Let's keep the conversation alive. So it started in a very focused niche and then really evolved to something different over the years. When you were like sitting in your interviews for your the professorship that you now have, how much did that play a role? Did they bring it up? Like, hey, you're kind of famous online. Like, was that part of the conversation? I think people were generally probably suspicious of it. 
It's like, I don't know what this is, and I don't know what it has to do with theoretical computer science. And so it didn't come up much, and I think when it did, it was sort of in the sense of like finding out that someone had some interesting hobby that they were getting some attention for. And I was happy not to have it be a big part of the conversation at that point. But you know, now I have 10 years, so I can talk about whatever I want. You describe your research as uh, studying distributed algorithms at the extremes. I'm actually really curious of, as to what you do on a daily basis. I read the description in detail and looked at some of your courses, and it's quite difficult to understand. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's probably the first time someone has ever asked me in a podcast interview about my computer science research. So <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it. Here's the, the short summary. So distributed algorithms are where you have a lot of things that are interacting locally, and yet you want the system at the global level to do something useful. So it could be a lot of things, but it could be, for example, you have a bunch of computers in a data center that are sending messages back and forth, and they want to solve some global problem in the data center, safely distribute some data or, or, or agree on some update decision. But it covers all sorts of different things, from computers and data centers down to ants on an anthill, trying to have their local interactions end up building a complex ant colony structure. And so this field on how you study these algorithms has been around for a while, and my specialty is I study this type of distributed coordination in extreme settings. And what's an extreme setting? Well, it means either the things that are interacting and computing are incredibly limited, or the environment in which they're doing this is incredibly difficult. So you can imagine, you know, the things doing it, what if, what if they have a minimal amount of memory? What if they can send only the simplest type of information? What if the network they're connected in is changing completely and unpredictably from time to time? What if things are incredibly lossy? What if you have no advanced knowledge of who's in the network? What if you have just a constant number of bits to store things? So I, I try to push to the extremes and say, what's the minimal amount of resources you need for things to work together locally to solve global problems? So in your research, are you following what interests you? Or are you looking at problems that have import for, you know, it sounds like governments and companies would be very interested in the types of things you're considering? Yeah, I let my interest lead it and just try to do the best work I can and then hope that the foundations that are laid will, will prove useful in ways that sometimes it's pretty hard to predict. Have they ever? Has there ever been a moment in your career yet where something's popped out that... There's different scales at which that's possible. I think certainly within sort of my field of other theory-minded people working on these type of algorithms, certainly there's been ideas that have popped out and circulated, have been pretty well cited. I'm still waiting for the big breakout that goes beyond the field, but there's often a really long lag time on these type of things. That When you do theoretical work like I do, work where I don't really touch a computer, it's mainly done on a whiteboard, I'm mainly proving theorems. There's a long lag time from that to how it percolates through research and the systems into the real world, there's often a long lag time. So, so you're often flying blind. You're trying to lay down things that seem foundational, things that seem important from a theoretical point of view, and then it's hard to predict down the line which of those things is going to bubble up and, and become the foundation for something. Part of the reason I asked is because I was trying to imagine what your deep work blocks look like. And a lot of the examples, this is a concept that could apply to anyone, and we'll get, I guess, a little bit deeper into it, but it's easy to imagine like a writer, for example, like what they're doing. I'm trying to imagine what it is that you're doing when you're free from distraction. Like for a writer, it's like, oh, I finished a page that I could publish. Do you know that you're making progress when you're working through a theorem? This is what makes it a hard field. Sometimes yes, and sometimes it's hard to know because you're hitting walls. This didn't work, this didn't work. But over time, you learn that that's often 
just as important progress as I figured out how to make this step. Because when you're exploring something and failing to, to get to a solution, what you're doing is you're, you're filling in the map in your brain of the area and the topic, what works, what doesn't work, what's the result of different techniques. So it all sort of builds up, even if it can feel frustrating. So you know, my deep work blocks as a computer scientist is really just going to be two things. Either I'm walking and thinking, this is how I try to make progress on proofs, or I'm at a computer trying to actually write up carefully the proof, which itself ends up requiring a lot of thinking because the scribbles in your notebook that you think were brilliant, when you actually get down and try to formalize the math, you realize you missed 19 things. And then as a sort of a third thing that's sometimes in there, it'll be reading papers. That's the glamorous life of a theoretician is there's certain periods on a problem where I'm walking, often in the woods, or I'll walk around the little city where I live, and so I can stop at a coffee shop to work in my notebook and then write to think, stop in the library to write in my notebook, thinking, writing, thinking, writing. And then when I think I have it, I get in front of a computer and try to formalize it. So it's, it's not the type of thing that would make for a really visually exciting movie, but under the surface, intellectually, it's usually pretty interesting what's going on. I noticed on your example of time blocking that reading was the thing that you were going to do during that deep work block. That kind of struck me a little bit because I had the assumption that during a deep work block, you'd want to be making production. This was actually a bit of a breakthrough I had around the time I was writing the book Deep Work, is that it was helpful for me to recognize and then write down in detail what the different types of deep work were in my life. And so I knew there was this sort of deep research where I'm trying to encounter and understand complicated ideas, which turns out to be just crucial. I mean, especially in sort of theory, academic theory, it's the key to everything, is understanding other people's work is the toolkit that everything else comes from. Then there's deep thinking, trying to, I have the tools, I'm trying to apply them to solve something specific. And then there's the deep production where you're actually trying to capture those thoughts into something clear and coherent. And what I discovered was I needed to split those three things apart because the best practices for each were different. And when I, when I had them all melded together, it would cause problems because I, maybe I'd be sitting there trying to write something up like, oh, this isn't deep work. I'm not in the woods. And I'd be frustrated about it. But then I recognized, now, wait a second, this is just as important as that other type of deep work. Or I'd figure to, to write something well required different conditions in my life than to think about something well. And so I could optimize different types of depth differently. And to me, that was important. Do you often schedule one sort of deep work for a block and then abandon it for another? Not usually. I'm pretty controlled about my time. There's this idea out there that people often bring up when they talk to me that the key to creativity is that you're going to be constantly having these sort of serendipitous insights that completely shift what you're doing in the moment. And I just found in my life as someone who actually produces creative things for a living that it's much more predictable than that. A lot of, okay, I need to sit down, I need to just... I need to understand this better. I'm going to spend four hours reading these papers. Or I need to just bounce this theorem around. I don't know how to get there. Let me just try things. I just need to sit there and, and, and try to make progress. Now, within there, you might bounce all over the place. I was trying this approach. Now, let me try this approach. But you know, as someone who does creative things for a living, I am not concerned about having sort of a structure on my schedule or saying this is what I'm going to work on today or, or here's my time blocks. I've actually found that actually helps create a production more than just, say, trying to leave things open and somehow hope that the lack of structure in your day will lead to more creative connections or insights in your thinking. It reminds me of your law of productivity or one of your laws of productivity, which is high quality work produced equals time spent times intensity of focus. There's something sort of calming about this law to me. It's very workmanlike. Some of the reality of, of creative production sometimes is it's very workmanlike. You got to put in the hours and the hours are often you're sitting there thinking intensely or you're sitting there writing and it's just hard to craft what you're trying to do. I guess it was Chuck Close who said inspiration is for amateurs. It's absolutely true. 
creative production at the professional level is very fulfilling, but it's craftsmanship in the sense of you're there with the wood all very carefully shaping the piece of wood. It's it's hours, and the more intense they are, the more you get out of the hours. So that's my theory. Focus as hard as you can, rack up the hours, repeat, good things come out of it. A lot of what we're going to talk about today is sort of set on this backdrop of digital minimalism. One of the things that's sort of having a renaissance in our generation is this walking. It's sort of being presented as like this novel concept. How did you stumble onto this most natural of <laughs> behaviors? Yeah, I discovered this thing called walking. I don't know if you know about this hack that I invented. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big walking proponent because it has just worked for me. I mean, probably the way I was exposed to it is when I was in sort of grad school and a postdoc, my wife and I always lived in apartments that were kind of just a little bit too inconveniently far from things for it to be easy to get around. So we spent a lot of time walking. It was like, okay, the subway, the tea we got to get to is, you know, about a mile away. And we never we never had a car during these periods either. So I just spent a lot of time on foot. And then I moved, we moved within walking distance of my office at MIT, except for walking distance was like, that's eh, a mile and a half, right? So I just was always, always walking. And I had better thinking happen. I had better insights, had better thinking. And I found the more I controlled my thinking during the walks, it's what I called in, in the deep work book, productive meditation, that if I, instead of just letting my thinking go, if I controlled it and said, hey, let me use this, I'm going to think about X, I'm going to think about Y, that it turned out to be like cognitive calisthenics. Then it started to really improve my ability to think. And, and so now I started thinking about walking with a set thought that I stick to is sort of the mental equivalent of I'm going to, you know, stop and do 15 pull-ups or I'm going to go to the gym. And so walking has been at the core of my sort of intellectual fitness routine, I guess we could call it for a decade now. In some ways, it seems like there is this theme in your work that sort of getting back to these things that are more timeless. And because in some ways, technology is affecting the way we think so much that they're even more valuable today than they've been in the past. Yeah, I think this is true, especially in recent years. I've spent more and more time sort of publicly speaking and writing in the capacity of sort of, I wouldn't say technology critic, but a social critic who really cares about and thinks a lot about the impact of new technologies on our work in life. The reason I do is not that I don't like the technologies. I mean, I'm a computer scientist. I mean, my job is to explore and advance technologies. But something that seems to be true throughout the history of technology is that when you have big revolutions or big jumps in the technologies, there's usually these early waves where they sweep over the society in very powerful new behaviors and habits and strategies that almost always evolve into something more sophisticated down the line. Our first encounter with powerful new technologies is often uncertain and disruptive, and it takes a lot of self-reflection and thinking to try to then move forward and say, okay, but how do we really want to use these technologies? In other words, we never really get it right the first time around. And a lot of that, I think, is going on with the mobile communication and digital networking revolutions. Having access to networks on a mobile device, the revolution of the internet where you can have massive communication services and products that bring together lots of people. These are very groundbreaking technologies. But when they're so powerful, when they first hit, they're going to sweep over us in these sort of waves and fads. And so I think it's, a, it's an important time for a lot of self-reflection and critique. I mean, this is a time where we have to figure out how we want to use these things. Otherwise, the technologies themselves can push us around. So I don't think it's a coincidence that when I'm talking about how to build a fulfilling, successful life of the mind, I'm often drawing from what seems like low-tech solutions it's not so much that they're low tech as it is they're things that have evolved and been polished and now we know work very well. And I think a lot of the new stuff is getting there. 
but we don't quite know how best to use all these new technologies. And so that's why I'm a little bit slower to immediately jump to whatever the latest new technological breakthrough is, is somehow going to be the key to something as old fashioned as craftsmanship or producing something that's valuable. What do you think we're getting wrong here? Well, I think there's two major things that I think we're getting wrong. At least it's just my conjecture. The first is in the workplace, this embrace of connectivity between people within and outside an organization as being a key driver of productivity and success, I think is misguided and something that we're going to look back on and say we got that wrong. I mean, essentially what happened is during the 80s and early 90s, there was an IT revolution in the back office. So we had digital computer networks, we had very robust database systems, this all became cheaper because microprocessors were getting very powerful. And so we got a revolution in the back office. We could now put information in our business in a database, and we could connect these databases with high-speed computer networks, and we can move information around faster. And now you could book an airline ticket from a website. You know, the agents didn't have to go through some old-fashioned system, and Walmart could get just-in-time inventory systems. This rose to productivity numbers, by which I mean the actual economic measure of productivity, you know, work outputted, value outputted per person. Then in the late 90s into the 2000s, the technology came around that allowed us to move those same type of IT ideas into the front office, to the workers. And we say, well, we should get the workers in these organizations in the front office also connected up with high-speed networks. More communication is better. More information moving around is better because this, this had this huge IT revolution. The productivity numbers, however, stopped going up. So we, we start connecting up all the workers, and then we get a smartphone, so now they can be connected all the time. So we've ramped up the speed and amount of connectivity between workers, and non-industrial productivity just stalled. So I think what happened was, is we took this idea that worked well for back office information and systems. Let's connect things, more connections better, faster connection is better, moving information is better. And we grafted it onto people. And so people should be like IT systems and very connected. And what happens is it doesn't work so well. The human brain is not like a computer. The problem is, is if you have the human brain doing all the connection, all the emails, all the slack, all the time, it can't do the main thing that it's supposed to do, which is to think hard about the information and produce new value. So that's one thing I think we're getting wrong is this idea that people should act like human network routers. More connectivity, more information is not by default better when you're talking about humans trying to actually sit there and use their brain to create new value. And then in our personal, more of the personal sphere, I think we need to be way more suspicious about what's happening with, in particular, major social media services. What's happening is we have the internet, which had this great potential to democratize information and connection. It would be this place where you could get news from all sorts of different sources. It was going to be this place where we could have a distributed economy and I could sell straight to you and you could sell straight to me and it would get much more diversity in the economy. It'd be a place to express yourself, a breeding ground for activism. And a couple companies came around in the first decade of 2000s and basically tried to centralize the whole thing. So we had this distributed, democratizing thing that's now being controlled by two or three companies that are trying as hard as they can to get as much of the internet as possible to pass through a small number of companies' computers, which is something that I think we should be worried about. And in part, they now have, and I'm talking about Facebook and Twitter, have this huge control over how we experience the internet and how we use the internet. And one of the things they're doing is they've discovered that the smartphone is like a billboard you bring in your pocket. So it opens up the idea that they can sell advertisements to you in places that otherwise there's no way to get a billboard up or nowhere to get a, a TV screen up selling an advertisement. The problem is they need people to keep taking the cell phone or smartphone out of their pocket and loading up their billboard service. How do you get people all throughout the day to take out the mobile billboard and click on your thing so you, they can sell ads to you in places that no one else could do before? They have to make it addictive. 
they have to engineer the service to be as addictive as possible so that you will keep taking it out in places where otherwise advertisements couldn't reach you before. It's what I call attention fracking. They found, okay, we can grow the advertising part of the economy if we can figure out how to use new technology to exploit or extract new drops of attention out of people's brains. They figured out the way to do it is get them addicted to looking at a device that sells ads. That way they'll look at it in places we couldn't reach, like in the bathroom or, you know, waiting in line at the bank. Now we can get ads to them in other places. And I think that's dangerous. I think it's sort of subverting the potential of the internet. And this is what happens is if you let this something so powerful be centralized in a small number of companies, internet goes from being this democratizing force that has all this potential and into something where all the behaviors are being funneled towards whatever gets you to look at the phone more. And that's probably not good either. So I, I don't mean to, <laughs> to go on so long, but basically those have been my two hobby horses recently is I think we're getting communication, the role of communication wrong in the workplace. And I think we should be more suspicious about the centralizing tendencies of the major social media companies. I loved your post on Facebook freaking, which is sort of like the resistance. Okay, I just want to jump in here to say a word about the blog post I'm referring to here. It was called Facebook Freaks, and Cal wrote about it to talk about a group of people that sort of hack Facebook to use it as a tool and not a distraction. They do that by doing things like blocking the feed or taking it off of their smartphone and a variety of other tactics that he talks about. All right, now back to the interview. Because that's the thing about a lot of these tools is that, well, you could use Slack as an example of something that comes into your life under the guise of productivity. Just a few months ago, I received a few Slack messages that were like from team members. They were like, hey, you know, tomorrow morning you got to do this. And I'm like looking at this on my phone. And by having the time to like ruminate on all the shit I had to do tomorrow morning, I was actually less effective when I finally got to the stuff. It took me a surprisingly long time to realize that because I kind of implicitly trusted this connective force between me and the people that are important to me in my career. Yeah, I think there's a difference between in the moment productivity, which is I have a thing I need to take care of or make progress on, and true productivity, which is the value produced by the organization. These are often at odds with each other, and I, I think we often get them mixed up. So Slack used without structure, emailed used without structure, really supports in-the-moment productivity. Hey, I could just click this thing and shoot off this message, and it was very, very easy for me to sort of move this thing forward. Or I could send a, a Slack notification to Dan, and it took me 10 seconds, and progress was made. But if it's slowing down the rate at which you actually produce things that are valuable to the outside world, it's not helping true productivity. And true productivity is ultimately what matters. And I think it's as we get better at measuring that and recognizing that, that we're going to start to get the pushback and say, actually, I don't particularly care if in the moment productivity plummets and your job is harder because work by definition is hard. What I care about is how much value do we produce this quarter? How good was the things we produced? We can get around the annoyance of I can't reach you with a Slack message at every moment. If we have to build some other structures and there's some times we're going to be frustrated and it's a little bit more process-oriented, so be it. That's really kind of not the goal. What matters is what comes out of the black box. And so I think that's the type of thinking that's going to lead to some revolutions in how we work. If I had a nickel for every listener of this show who I've met in person who said something to me like, I had no idea you guys were doing that, I'd have a big stack of nickels. The truth is, the vast majority of the initiatives and events that we create for listeners of this show are never announced on the podcast. The only reliable way to stay in the loop and to get involved is to subscribe to our email newsletter. Join thousands of entrepreneurs today. You can find all the details at tropicalmba.com slash subscribe.
Let's talk about a different sort of inversion that you've made, but similar kind of reversal of, of a way to think, which is thoughts on crafting a career. Specifically, a lot of people listening to this are thinking about becoming successful entrepreneurs. And I think, well, I'll just quote you, growing up, we're told by our guidance counselors, career advice books, the news media and others to follow our passion. This advice assumes that we have a pre-existing passion. If we all have just have the courage to discover this calling and to match it to our livelihood, the thinking goes, we'll end up happy. So what's wrong with this idea in your view? Well, there's two issues with it. One is this notion that you should follow your passion depends for it to make any sense on the assumption that most people have pre-existing passions that they can identify and use as the foundation for making career choices in our current 21st century economy. We don't have a lot of evidence that that's true for most people. We don't have a lot of evidence, especially young people coming out of college, for some reason are going to be pre-wired to have this strong inclination for some particular job opportunity that happens to be available in the current shape of our economy. I, I don't think anywhere in our genetic history did people evolve a gene, for example, that made them really pre-destined you know, destined to be an online marketer versus a PR person versus a computer programmer. So it really depends on this assumption that we have these passions. Most people don't. And when I was researching you know, the book I wrote on this, what I found is it was causing a lot of anxiety and confusion for people. They're like, oh, I'm supposed to follow my passion. Why don't I have a passion? What's wrong with me? And then they start to force things into it. And this must be my passion. Well, if we had a nickel for any time you heard someone say, I don't know what I want to do. And the normal response to that had been, well, you need to do more introspection. But actually, I think the more sane response is, why do we believe that people should have a pre-existing inclination for what they want to do when most people, especially young people, have had almost no exposure to any of the possible jobs in the economy and have no real sense of what they mean or they have no information or very limited information about what's out there, what's possible. It seems to me really limiting to try to figure out in advance, this is what I'm supposed to do. So that's one problem. The second is it depends on this assumption that if you really like something and then you do that for your work, it'll transfer over and you'll really like your work. Which is one of these syllogisms that kind of makes sense when you hear it, but we don't have a lot of evidence that that's true either. Professional satisfaction meaning is a pretty complicated thing, and there's a lot of research on it. And what you don't find in that research is any sort of emphasis on a match of the work to a pre-existing interest as being a really important factor in whether or not you find the work interesting. And of course, there's tons of stories, tons of stories of people who love something as a hobby switch over to do it as their work and they're miserable. The amateur baker who opens the bakery and is, this is terrible, I hate doing it, I've lost my whole love of baking. That's because what makes you love your work is very different than what makes you love a topic from a sort of personal or hobby point of view. So to tell someone, follow your passion, really depends on these two things. You know what your passion is and if you match something you really like to your work, you'll really like your work. Neither of those things tends to be true. And so I think we need a more sophisticated discussion about, well, how do real people who really do love their work, how did they get there? We should work backwards from reality as opposed to working forward from a slogan that just kind of makes sense when we first hear it. When you stumble upon something that's resonant with me, and it sounds like one of the implications of if we're not going to go with passion, you suggest this route you call the craftsperson approach. And it seems like deep work follows pretty closely behind that idea if you're going to accept this craftsperson approach. Can you describe what you mean by that? Yeah, I can. And to be clear, passion, I mean, I don't like the word passion, but basically love for your work is the goal I'm espousing. But what I'm doing is I'm just inverting the order. The evidence I saw when I looked at the literature and then did a lot of interviews with a variety of people who loved your work is the evidence I saw said most people get it backwards. People don't start with the strong pre-existing love for a field and then match that to their job and then love their job. 
it tends to be that the love for people's work comes later. It's something they cultivate and build towards. It's not the starting point, it's the end point. It's I want to build a career that I will end up loving, not I want to find a career that I'll love from day one. And so I like to clarify, I want people to love their work. And because of that, I want to make sure that they have the most actual effective advice, the most tested advice for doing it. Because if you give them bad advice, you're holding people back from reaching that goal. So that's where the craftsman mindset came in. If you study people who love their work, a very common path that got them there is they started by getting very good at something that's rare and valuable. Like a craftsman honing a skill, and then they turn around and used that value as leverage. And it's once they had that leverage that they could really start shaping and crafting their career in ways that resonate and away from ways that don't. So this was a very common pattern. People got really good, and then once they were good, they had the standing to craft a career that was very good to them. You know, it's the things that make great work great are really valuable and everyone wants them. And no one's just going to give them to you because it sounds nice. You have to have something to offer in return. And in the market economy, what you have to have to offer in return is some really bankable skills. This craftsman mindset is don't focus on what's my job bringing to me. It's what am I bringing to the job? And you build your skill like a craftsman. It's not about loving your work every day. It's about building towards a point in your work five years from now that you're going to love it. And it turns out there's deep satisfaction in skill honing. Humans really like this. You're getting better at something. You're crafting a craft that's useful to the world and that people value. And as you get better at it, your passion for your work grows, your motivation for your work grows, and then you get to start shaping your career towards the cool things that we all like. So that's the craftsman mindset. I wrote a book that talked about this, and a lot of people came back and said, okay, I buy it. So how do I do it? And you can kind of think of deep work as the answer to that question. One of the conclusions you come to is kind of quietly startling, especially for a lot of entrepreneurs who might be dreaming of or thinking of like how they get started, where do I go, which direction, what kind of business. And that conclusion is professional success is hard, but it's not complicated. Yeah, it's not that complicated. And what goes along with that is the choice of what you do is not nearly as important as you think. Now, the flip side of that is what you do after you make the choice is much more important than people believe. But in my worldview, in terms of choosing what you do, it's not that you can just throw a dart at a job listing and say, great, I guess I'm going to be a pharmacist. That would be sort of naive. But on the other hand, I think if something seems interesting to you, if something seems like it would open up interesting opportunities if and when you got really good at it, that's enough for that to become a potential foundation for a working life you really love. And so if you have in your life a dozen different things that match that criteria, any of them can be the foundation of a working life you love. You offer a lot of interesting caveats along the way through your books. And one of them is that control requires capital. And to illuminate that, you use an example pretty close to this community, which is a lot of our listeners, you know, consider themselves lifestyle designers. They want to take control of their life. And do you recall the example you used of the lifestyle designer who didn't quite have enough capital to take control? This is Jane's story of the blogger. If you spend some time browsing the blogs of lesser known lifestyle designers, so lesser known than Tim Ferriss, and so I fall into that category. No, you are not a lesser known. Tropical MBA is not lesser You'll begin to notice the same red flags again and again. And of course, we're not just singling out this community, but I think it's an interesting point. A distressingly large fraction of these contrarians like Jane skipped over the part where they build a stable means to support their unconventional lifestyle. They assume that generating the courage to pursue control is what matters, while everything else is just a detail that is easily worked out. Can you describe this problem? Because I think we all can, we've all seen this. What strategically is going wrong here? The metaphor I use to try to understand career development and passion is this metaphor of career capital. 
And the way I like to think about it is as you get better at things that are rare and valuable, you can imagine that you get more of this career capital deposited in your account. So the more skill you have and the more rare is, the more valuable, the more career capital you have. And then you turn around and think that this career capital is what, in turn, you invest to get cool things in your working life. And so if you study people who love what they do, something that comes up often, and I think I called it like the good life elixir, something that comes up often is they have a lot of autonomy. This is in part why I think lifestyle design and Tim's work really resonated when it first came out is because he was hitting on something that we seem to be hardwired for, which is we love the idea and we thrive in autonomy, by which I mean you have control over what you do and how you do it in your working life, which I think is a lot of what's at the core of lifestyle design. He's right that that is a fantastic thing to go after. And I loved in his original book, his use of this currency. I mean, this kind of influences my work with career capital, this currency notion that you have monetary currency, but also the currency you have in terms of time and freedom is just as valuable. That's 100% true. My research bore that out completely. The issue is, in my formulation, if you want, let's say, like a lot of autonomy, which can be very valuable, you have to pay career capital for it. And if you want a ton of autonomy and a really interesting life, then you probably need a ton of career capital, roughly speaking, to invest in it. And the career capital is built up by building up rare and valuable skills. You probably would know this better than me since you've monitored and known this community for a long time now. There was this first wave of people who came after, say, four-hour work week who loved the autonomy idea but didn't have the career capital to invest to get it. So it was like, great, I've quit my job, I'm going to Thailand... And they kind of left out the part of, well, what do I have to offer to the market in return that's going to allow me to sort of have a lifestyle where I can be fine financially and still have huge flexibility on my hours and live where I want to live? And geo-arbitrage was not going to cover that whole gap. I mean, there had to be something to fill in. And so that's why I told that story of a, of a blogger, who lifestyle designer, who just quit the job, started the blog, and was just sort of wondering why am I not making a living off of this. But there's actually no capital, no capital, no value to offer to get that in, in exchange. And then I told the alternative story of a developer, Lulu, who built up a rare and valuable skill in a particular type of database development and then leveraged that. And I, I told her whole career story. At every step, she leveraged her skill as she got better to get more flexibility and more freedom. And she ended up in a place where she could then do six months on, six months off. And she actually would go to Thailand in her six months off. That's why I used that, because her family was from there. And so she had such a rare and valuable skill that she could work for six months. She was in a lot of demand, would make a lot of money, and then take six months off and scuba license or pilot license. I mean, it's all this sort of autonomy dreams of lifestyle design. And my argument is that's the right way to do it. The work environment is sort of a market economy. The cooler the thing you want in your life, sort of the more you have to offer in return. So it's like the... Before you get to the four-hour work week, there's the 40-hour work week of building your skill, and then you cash it in to get the four-hour work week. That was the formulation that seemed to make more sense when I was out there studying the problem. A few of the ways you suggest doing that are by sort of placing these little bets in your career. And one of the other things that I'm hoping you can describe for us is this idea of pushing yourself to the edge of possibilities. There's really two things at play here. So the first thing at play is this notion that if you want an awesome career, Choose a skill and relentlessly develop it like you're an athlete in intense focused training. Right? Most people don't do that. This is the key to like succeeding with lifestyle design is you have something that's valuable that you're relentlessly getting better at. 
not just doing it a lot, but training like your LeBron James. You know, where's my weakness? I need a little bit better free throw percentage from this part of the paint. I'm going to go do a thousand of those with an obstacle in the way. You do the equivalent in this skill. You know, I'm trying to get better at this type of programming. I'm really weak on tree algorithms. I'm going to be the boss at tree algorithms by the time this week is over, that type of thing. The second thing I noticed, so this also comes up, and the book, by the way, just to set the context we're talking about here, is something I wrote back in 2012 called So Good They Can't Ignore You, just so we can connect it back to it. Something else I noticed in that book when I studied people who love what they did is that a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them had some sort of mission that they organized their working life around. And it gave meaning and direction to everything they were trying to do. And in some sense, this is kind of on a spectrum. If you study people who love what they do, on sort of one end, you have the extreme autonomy crowd, which maybe describes sort of the aspirations of a lot of people in your audience, which is what we were just talking about. I want to be able to trade my skill for a ton of control over what I work on and how I work on it. Then you have the mission crowd, who has some overriding mission that their whole working life is focused on, and that can also be a real source of meaning or passion. And the two can overlap, but often the mission people are kind of workaholics, to be honest. So that's why I, I put them on into the spectrum. You can do both, obviously. You can be someone who has a ton of autonomy, and then you decide to work on something that's very important to you, but they're often separated. And so I looked into how do you find, how do these people find a centralizing mission that their whole working life can be built around? And the main observation was, is they don't start with figuring out the mission and then go figure out how do I act on it. Almost always the really good missions, the ones that matter, the ones that you really can build a successful working career around and be a source of satisfaction, require that you first become really good in the field. And my best explanation for it is once you get to the cutting edge of a field, it's only once you're there that you can peer ahead into what the, the systems biologist Stuart Kaufman calls the adjacent possible, where you see the new possible configurations of the current cutting-edge ideas. It's in that space that the really cool missions, the really cool new innovations, the really cool new ideas come from. So if you don't get to the cutting edge first, you're not going to be able to identify a, a practical mission, something that you can reasonably probably build your working life around. There's a lot of exceptions, but for the most part, it goes back to this notion is you've got to start with the craftsmanship apprenticeship phase. And so it's just another example of where when it comes to really loving your working life, we've got to change this idea that it's all about figuring stuff out in advance and then acting on it. It's almost always action, and the action leads to the insights and the developments and the satisfaction. When you're exposed to your work, I think for me, at least one of the clear, you know, you kind of like tasked with it at the end of the day, because you buy into what you're saying. It's like, all right, this guy's right. It's like, well, now I got to work really hard and intensely. That's what he's putting on my doorstep here. And I don't think it's that strange then that a lot of the posts on your blog are about productivity. There's this part in deep work where one of your friends describes, and I've never said this word out loud, only a few times, eudaimonia. Yeah eudaimonia machine. And this word is interesting because I think it kind of captures a lot more than the word happiness. The idea is that it's a flourishing person, not just someone who's happy or satisfied. Can you describe to me the eudaimonia machine? Yes. I mean, eudaimonia goes back to Aristotle and essentially the Greek notion of what you were trying to do with all of this thinking about how to live is you wanted a life and when you were flourishing as a human, you were living up to the potential of a human being and therefore have this flourishing life. Which, by the way, is quite a different idea than our sort of modern notion that the key is to find this thing you love to do and then match that to your work. I say that only to emphasize, and just to digress briefly, is that when I did research on Follow Your Passion, people thought it was a timeless piece of advice, but the phrase doesn't show up in the printed English language in the context of career advice to the late 1980s. It's a very new concept. 
the old concepts to go back to Aristotle and the Greeks like eudaimonia, the stuff that's been around for thousands of years is actually quite different. It's not about what do you want to do, what's the best match for you, what's going to make you happiest. It's how can you make the most of your potential as a human being and feel like you're really flourishing on all the potentials. So eudaimonia is probably the right thing in some sense to have in mind, much more so than there's something out there that I'm wired for and if I do that, I'll love it and where can I get mine? The eudaimonia machine was yeah an idea that an architect friend of mine had where basically he was envisioning a workplace that was a linear series of rooms you went through that sort of prepared you for the last room, which was a completely soundproofed enclosed space in which you just thought deeply about something very important in your professional life. It funneled you towards deep, contemplative, high-value cognitive work as this is what is going to lead to eudaimonia in sort of our, our current age. And it's so different than how most people organize their lives or organize their professional lives that I love the concept. It might be worth sort of warping out of the interview to, to talk about this ideal office designed for deep work, because I think it's a cool concept. And I'll link to a blog post where you can see the visuals here. But to get a sense for what Cal's talking about here, imagine an office that is five sequential rooms But in order to get to the next room, there'd only be basically one door. So you'd come in the front door and to get to the second room, you'd have to go directly through the first room and so on. And so those rooms look like this. The first room would be the gallery. And this would be where like sort of a reception area where, you know, if you were an author, that would be like where the achievements, what had occurred in that office were displayed. The next would be the salon. That's where maybe there's free Wi-Fi, there's coffee and beer. You can kind of hang out and have a snack and meet people. Again, imagine yourself stepping through. You're stepping then into the next room, which would be the library. There'd be a bunch of resources there. Maybe there'd be a fax machine. If you're in Japan, there'd be some maybe computers sitting around that you can use to log onto the web. This is where you do your reading and stuff. Then you sequentially move in to the office, and this is where work would be done, whiteboards, emails, administrative, getting things done. And then finally, the last room you would resolve into the chamber, which would be a quiet place, maybe with no Wi-Fi, with the ideal desk, light, temperature, that you, when you stepped into the chamber, finally, you were ready to do your deep work. Maybe not realistic for most of us, but kind of a cool idea to take a philosophical or theoretical concept and see it manifested in an architectural form. You must have items sitting around your desk or a way that you like to set up things to create a similar sort of environment. How do you do it? I like to spend time on foot and I like to be in nature when possible. So I actually do a lot of, for me, I stole some of this from Charles Darwin. For me, when I'm working on a thought, I'd rather be on foot. I'd rather be on foot outside. I'd rather be on foot outside surrounded by trees. I spend a lot of time in sort of the thinking stage of a project with an outside office. And in fact, I occasionally publish these posts on my blog where I take photos of sort of, here's my latest outside office. And I take photos of these various places and various woods that I've found that, that I've been doing work at. And then when it comes to my my office itself, when it comes time to actually write, even then I often take my laptop to new places or different places or places that I only associate with deep thinking. I mean, I really like to separate that from other mundane activity. And that's why I like this term deep work, because it separates that type of intense thinking from the other types of stuff that you do, the communication, the emails, the meetings that you you also do as part of your professional life. And so you come up with a conclusion from my writing is, oh, I'm going to have to work hard. What that means is I'm going to have to work hard at the deep work part. 
But that's kind of different than being like really busy or really overloaded. And it can be a lot more fulfilling. And I think it's really helpful to separate the two. And I often, I think about deep work as something that it's hard work, but it's not hard to do work. It's not draining. It's not something that you dread. It's not something that is taking over your life. It's four hours this day that was very successful craftsmanship. You can be an incredible, hard, deep worker and not work past five and not work on weekends and be incredibly successful. And so there's a clear separation between deep work and doing that intensely. And there's no way to avoid that. And then all the other busyness, the stuff that really leads people to be stressed, that leads people to be busy, that leads people to do the second shift at night and spend their Sundays in their inbox. That's all kind of separate stuff. And when you separate the two, I think it gives you some hope that I can ramp up the intensity without having to ramp up the intensity of the stuff that's really stressing me out. You mentioned that you do shut your laptop on most days by five or 6 p.m. And that Part of the reason why you schedule deep work every day is it's really working. It really works. How much can you schedule a day for deep work sessions? What's realistic? You have to build up to it. And something to keep in mind, and I've had to write some more about this recently, is there's a difference between how much deep work you can do in a sustained session. Like how long can you actually keep up intense concentration in one sustained session versus how much deep work you can do in, say, a given day. Like I'll often have six, seven-hour days that are all blocked off for deep work. It doesn't mean that I have an unbroken stream of concentration for seven straight hours because that's actually impossible. But what it does mean is I'm doing an intense burst and then I'll dial back and do another intense burst and dial back. But in those dial backs between the burst, I'm not exposing myself to unrelated stimuli. I'm not looking at email. I'm not sort of dabbling in another work-related project. It's my mental context, whatever I'm working deeply on that day stays there. So I can keep coming back to it and then, okay, maybe I need to back off and go for a walk for a little bit. Okay, now let me attack again. Let me attack again. So you can have a whole day that you're just working deeply on something. But in terms of a single session, you're talking like an hour or two probably without having to dial back and give your brain a rest. Of all the hundreds of productivity tips I've read on your blog, and I'll probably outline a lot of them for our readers. I can't ask you about everyone, unfortunately. I would want to. But the one that maybe is most shocking to me is that you do a household task in the morning, like you pay bills before you do anything else. For some reason, that jumped out at me as like, wow, I've never heard anybody say that before. That seems like something you'd want to save until 8 p.m. when your brain is just completely trashed. So what's your thinking there? There's a big push out there, this notion of like, you have to get in and get your deep thinking done before you do anything else, because then you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it, and, and you're going to lose it with all this other stuff going on. I have a much more structured approach to my day, where I move around the hours of my day, like building blocks. Here's what I'm going to do here. Here's what I'm going to do there. Here's what I'm going to do there. I'm not so worried about like, I have to get this in before I get to my deep work, is because for the most part, if it's a deep work type day, I'm not going to expose myself to a lot of email or other things that's going to pull away my attention. So my day, I have I have two kids, and so my day doesn't really get a start for work until a certain point, right? So in the morning, I'm with my kids, I'm with my wife, we're getting them ready for school, pay some bills, and then there's a, a point where sort of childcare kicks in, and it's, okay, now I can switch over to work. And on the other hand, at the end of the day, it's now I have to stop work, I'm back in the, I'm back in the family mode. If you have this notion of like, I got to get in there and before I do anything else, think hard before I lose it. What that tells you is there's more house cleaning to be done in terms of your professional life and how you structure it and your comfort with deep work. I think a a well-run professional life, you should be able to say, I have three hours of deep work here and then I'm going to work on this. And then maybe at the end of the day, I'll do this. It can be a little bit more structured if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I'm wondering, you've been on the campaign trail basically asking people to consider getting rid of some of their most prized possessions, their Twitter account, their Instagram followers. I think there's a lot of people that are thinking deeply about doing that. 
even though it's strange how new these things are and how important they seem to be so all of a sudden. But I think you would agree that you could spend your deep work sessions on Facebook. There's a lot of marketers, people that make their living off of things like Facebook and Instagram. So do you think that that's possible, that you could spend a deep work session on Facebook? I don't think it would qualify as deep work. I don't mean consuming Facebook. I was kind of thinking like determining a system for creating advertisements on Facebook or something like that. So for something to qualify as deep work, it typically requires, it's cognitively demanding and it's something that you work on without interruption. So I think certainly could do deep work surrounding social media. Like for example, the people who created Facebook had to do a lot of deep work to build these distributed systems, trying to master, you sit here with the manual and you're trying to understand how the nuances of say Facebook targeted marketing, that could very much be an act of deep work. Like, okay, I'm going to give intense concentration to really understanding all the nuances of this or, or what works or what doesn't. Building a new system, like as you're saying, like I'm going to build this sort of back-end A-B testing system that's going to plug into Facebook. That could be an act of deep work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, that could be. Basically, anything that requires you to think very intensely, push your brain to its limit, and you keep it on the target for a long period of time without distraction, that's deep work because that's the type of activity that actually gives you these huge returns versus almost any other type of cognitive activity. So I think that's completely possible. One of the things I wanted to sort of ask you at the end here is part of the reason that Bill Payne thing in the morning struck me is because for you, it was like a simple realization and it had a big impact for you. You know, I can think of a handful of things like that for myself. I'm curious, are there any others, like little things that you've done in your professional life that, wow, that was a simple thing, but man, it's really made a big impact over the months and years. There's several things that have I've had years of usage with and they make a huge difference. So one is a commitment to fixed schedule productivity, which is where you just decree by law, this is when I start working, this is when I stop working. And that's more or less can't be violated except for in exceptional circumstances. And then you work backwards from those rules and say, now what do I have to do to make everything else fit? I've been doing that for close to a decade now. That's a game changer. Say, so I stop work at 530 okay, what am I going to have to do to make that a reality? And it, it's a meta productivity hack because it forces you to suddenly get much better about all these other smaller productivity systems in your life, what you say yes to, how you schedule things, how organized you become. All of this becomes much more important if you're going to satisfy this law of I stop working at this point. So that's been a big thing for me. Weekly daily planning is something that's been massive for me. You talk about this shutdown schedule at the end of the day that is time consuming and annoying, but completely worth it. What's that look like? Yeah, so I do a shutdown routine at the end of my workday where it's all about convincing your mind that there's no open loops that it needs to worry about during your evening once work is done. So for me, it's actually I check it on my weekly plan. I check it on my task list. I make sure there's nothing lurking in my inbox. Also that when I then say now my work is complete, when later on in the night, my mind is like, I think we might need to think about some work stuff. You can say, no, 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 I wouldn't have shut down the workday if I hadn't made sure I was on track for my weekly plan, that there was no tasks we were mixing, there's nothing on our calendar that we forgot about, and there wasn't some like urgent thing that we, we messed in our inbox. I wanted to shut down my day if I hadn't checked all of that. Therefore, I don't have to engage in that rumination. I can be confident that we're set till the morning. You know, you reflect on this a little bit in your writing, and it can seem like a small thing, like, yeah, 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 but actually, I've noticed this in my life, work and attention to these sorts of digital anxieties they can really affect the rest of your life, you know, because if that workday is like two hours a day, say it starts to creep out, well, those are two hours a day that you could have been focused on things that maybe are way more important than your career. Work will expand to fill whatever space you give it. And so if you put no boundaries on it, you'll work till you go to sleep at night or whatever. 
and if your sleep habits change, then it would fill in even more. And, and it's, it's sort of an endless game. I don't buy that, like, when, when you have someone who's working 12 hours a day, I mean, I don't buy that it just happens to be the case that for their particular work, 12 hours a day is exactly how much work there is. <laughs> why isn't there 16 hours a day? Why are they doing okay with that? And why, well, what if we took away two hours? I think there's way more give in this, and so that's why I think it's important to try to contain it. And the, the shut it down, because you said it, it has a real impact. This type of stuff, especially in a very connected age where you have a lot of sort of social messaging and obligations going on, it sticks in your head. You know, it'll stick in your head and kind of what's the point if all you do is think about messages and work and this and that, if all your waking hours, and in some sense, it's kind of what's the point. It, it should be one of the things you do. So this is why, yeah, I'm a big proponent, fixed work day and a clear shutdown. And the thing about that shutdown routine is a lot of it's based on psychology. You know, I put it in place at a time in my life where I was having a hard time letting work go in the evening. And it was having a negative impact. It was when I was working on my doctoral dissertation. Because I'd be working on a proof and it, I'd find a flaw and then it'd be five. And I'd go home and be thinking, well, what if I never fix that flaw? And this whole theorem falls apart and then the whole thing falls apart and then I can't submit my dissertation. And I was like, okay, I got to find a, a clear shutdown for these things. And that's where the shutdown routine came from. And what happens when you use the shutdown routine is that for a month or so, you really have to leverage this idea that if your mind wants to think about work after the shutdown, instead of thinking about what it wants to think about, you respond by saying, I wouldn't have done the shutdown routine unless I had checked X, Y, Z, and therefore there's no need for me to ruminate. And so it allows you to have a confident response without actually ruminating about the work. After a month or so, your mind kind of gives up trying to bring these things up. And then you have this, it's sort of like professional cognitive behavioral therapy. And then you, you gain a sort of psychological piece. It's really important. I mean, I think it makes a big difference. You're a tenured professor, a researcher, someone who advocates that people cut off social media platforms that are many internet marketers consider essential to the survival of their careers. Are you surprised if I would have gone back to you 10 years ago when you started writing your blog that perhaps your most passionate cohort of fans are people who dropped out of college that make their living doing internet marketing. Is that surprising to you at all that all these kinds of these outsiders are coming to your blog and getting inspiration from it? It doesn't surprise me. I saw the writing on the wall really like the early 2005, 2006, 2007. You got this sense that the internet was getting to a place where it was going to create disruption in how people built their lives or lived their lives. And it was going to open up a lot more flexibility. And it was sort of an exciting thing. And the people are going to be on the cutting edge. And this was the time when, like Tim Ferriss and other people started writing about this. I mean, I remember like when he, before his book came out, like him coming to MIT to give a lecture. And my friend Ramit Sethi was like, you got to meet my friend Tim. You got to come see this guy talk. I'm telling you, this guy's going to be huge. He's saying crazy things. And, and so there's this energy that I liked. Because these are the people that are getting out there, thinking new thoughts, trying to build things from scratch. And so I'm not surprised that a big part of my, I mean, I, there's a lot of different groups that, that read this stuff, and it's a huge variety from people who are very nonconformist who are out there trying to, they're building these sort of custom-built lives, which I think is fascinating and subversive and important. And on the other hand, CEOs who are trying to understand, like, how do I run a big company in the digital age? And I think that's not at all surprising because everything is so shook up and so new that everyone is looking for insight into what's going on in this new age and, and how do I make the most of it. Thank you so much, man, for giving us a full hour. Sure. No, I'm happy to. Yeah. It's lovely. I hope you felt like that was time well spent for you. 
If you're just starting out in your career, so good they can't ignore you. If you're struggling to get into entrepreneurship, I really think the tactics, the sort of power dynamics that Cal describes as to how these things unfold are incredibly accurate. I suggest you pick that up. Deep Work, the productivity manifesto for knowledge workers in the 21st century, especially the 2010s. We're getting assaulted by our handsets, by social media. How do you get meaningful work done that can turn into something that's a legacy and an asset for you? Those are the issues that Cal talks about. And on his wonderful blog, calnewport.com, do check it out. It's one of the few blogs that I've continually read for a decade now. And I had a really good time today. I hope you all did too. And we'll catch you next week, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.